unofficial opposition. The rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I don't know how anybody gets anywhere in this city these days. Honestly, you turn down every street and something is blocked. Hello, welcome to the program. Good morning. And did you know we're about to import an American-style political problem into Canada? Thanks to the liberals. The liberals hate American-style politics, don't they? They hate it, unless it's them doing it or it's them down schmoozing with Obama. They keep bringing up this week, well, we're the only ones that have had a state dinner in so many years because, of course, the conservatives are asking about the cost of taking Justin Trudeau's mother and in-laws and party bagmen down to Washington. If Stephen Harper had even gone to a state dinner and went by himself under a Republican president, it would have been a scandal in the media forever. They would have lost their collectivist little minds over Stephen Harper talking to Americans. But the liberals, well, they can get away with. They can also bring in American-style politics. Now, of course, one of the big issues in the U.S. presidential campaign is illegal immigration. It has helped fuel Donald Trump, who has made claims like this. The idea that of the 11 million undocumented workers, illegal immigrants, whatever you want to call them in this country, that you're painting them with a very broad brush, rapists, criminals, when that's probably a very small percentage. No, no, well, I don't think it's a small percentage. It's a lot, but it's not Mexicans necessarily. They're coming from all over. You talked about building a wall and having Mexico pay for it. Yeah. How exactly are you going to get Mexico to pay for it? the way, look, Mexico has not treated us well. Mexico treats us as though we are stupid people, which, of course, our leaders are. I don't okay. blame Mexico. Let, let's face it. Donald worse. Trump. But how do you force a country no, no. to build? Donald Trump saying he's going to build a wall, make Mexico pay for it. What's Canada going to do? We are actually going to re- get rid of the visa requirement for Mexican tourists coming to Canada. Now, why is this a big deal? Because before the Conservatives brought in the visa requirement. A quarter of our refugee applications were coming from our NAFTA partner, Mexico. They weren't in the middle of their narco-civil war at that time. They were just coming up here as economic migrants who wanted to jump ahead in the queue and say, hey, I'm a refugee. So more than 9,000, 9,421, I believe, is the number, you know, around that. In 2008, 9,421. And what did they do? They were mostly bogus claims that were rejected. So the conservatives brought in a visa requirement. You have to have a reason to come to Canada. You have to show what that reason is, show that you're in good health, show that you have enough money for your trip, and convince the immigration officer that you're going back. The liberals, they want to be nice to Mexico, so they're getting rid of that. Conservative MP Bob Soroya was up asking John McCallum about this in the House of Commons yesterday. Mr. Speaker, the Liberals have promised to remove the visa requirement for on Mexico. The Liberals have also promised to base their decision on evidence. Since a visa requirement was imposed on Mexico, asylum rate for Mexican nationals during the last four years has remained below 1%. In 2008, prior to the imposition of visa, asylum rate was above 25%. 
can the minister tell Canadians why he is making changes when the evidence clearly does not back it up? Thank you. The Honourable Minister of Immigration. Well, Mr. Speaker, the evidence clearly does back up the fact that uh, Mexico is an extremely important friend and trading partner, our second partner in uh, North America. The evidence does back up the terrific importance of tourist dollars from Mexico, which were largely lost as a consequence of this action whoa, by the previous government. Whoa, 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 hold on. We need to bring in thousands upon thousands of bogus Mexican refugees because of tourist dollars? He's worried about losing tourist dollars? Now, I want to remind you what the liberals like to say. They like to say that they're evidence-based. In fact, they say that a lot. After 10 years, evidence-based decision-making is back, Mr. Speaker. The evidence clearly does back up the fact that uh, Mexico is an extremely important friend and trading partner, our second partner in uh, North America. The evidence does back up the terrific importance of tourist dollars from Mexico, which were largely lost as a consequence of this action by the previous government. And the evidence does back up the actions that we are taking to mitigate and deal with the concerns that the member has raised. What we're trying to say again is we want to make sure we focus on making sure that people participate in the process. We're focused on sound evidence-based policies. We want to make sure... Evidence-based policies. What? These guys don't believe in evidence. They like saying evidence because it makes them sound smart. I'm smart. I said evidence-based. I'm down with that. I'm hip. I'm cool. Yeah. What's the reality here? The reality is Canadian taxpayers are going to take a huge hit by this action that is not about evidence. John McCallum said we lost a huge amount of tourist dollars. Let's contrast and compare. What actually happened when we put that visa requirement in? Did tourism drop? Yeah, it did. But in 2009, the year they brought it in, we had 161,000 visitors from Mexico. They spent $231 million in Canada. This is from StatsCan, not me. In 2013, 149,000 Mexican tourists. Oh, yeah, that dropped off. Oh, but wait, they spent more, $252,000. Did they spend more in 2008 before the visa requirement? Yeah, they did. The visa requirement came in in July of 2009, about halfway through. They spent about $100 million more, but... What McCallum isn't telling you is that the government was spending $300 million to deal with bogus refugees. These were people that just like they're flooding into the United States on a much grander scale, but they're flooding into the United States for economic reasons because they want a better life. I get that. But these people were coming as refugees. They were declaring themselves refugees. They get special treatment, special status. We have to take their claim seriously. It has to go through a process. $300 million a year it was costing us. So we lost some tourism dollars. We saved a couple hundred million. But the liberals who believe in evidence want to get rid of that. Why? Because the Mexican president's coming for a Three Amigos summit. Because they want to be nice. Because their policy is not based on evidence. It's based on feelings. Nothing more than feelings. I'll stop singing now. But let me just say that when this policy changes, and it will change by 
the end of June, when the Mexican president arrives, we're going to go back to having thousands of bogus refugees come here. And do you know what else is going to add to that cost, that $300 million that we'll be spending to deal with fake refugee claims? The liberals have brought back the gold-plated health care plan that the conservatives changed. They brought back the gold-plated one. You know what the conservatives' changes were? They made it the same as what Canadians can get from their government program. The liberals not only put it back to giving refugees more than what they can get from their government health care plan, they've also extended it to people that have been denied. The conservatives said, I'm sorry, you're denied as a refugee. Your gold-plated health care coverage is cut off. The liberals, they're putting it back in. Evidence-based policy, my fanny. Welcome to Sunny Ways and Fact-Free Policy under Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. Lowell Green's up next. I'm Brian Lilly. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. The captain of the Isle of Sanity, or perhaps the Carp Mountain of Sanity, joins me now, Lowell Green. Lowell, your thoughts on what I was talking about at the opening there, that the liberal government saying, without any evidence-based policy, even their bureaucrats say, actually, Mexico doesn't qualify for lifting the, the visa. They're going to do it just to be nice. Well, I, I think there's more involved than that, and I, I, we've seen this time and time again. I don't think it really has very much to do with whether it's practical, whether it saves money, uh, whether it makes us uh, appear to have a sunnier face to the world. I think it's all about just striking down anything that the conservative government has done. Have a look. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Every single thing that the conservative government did, every bill they passed, uh, every resolution is now being withdrawn, is, is being cut back or changed or canceled entirely. It's all about... Uh, you know, Canada is back. Trudeau said this right away, and, and what it seems to me is that whatever the Conservatives did has got to be bad. Whatever the Liberals do now is good. It brings Canada back, back from what I don't know. But you make a good <laughs> back point. Back from the Conservative abyss. Well, yeah, but it, it, to me, it's once again, it's, it's not practical. It's ideological. It's all about ideology. If the conservatives approve this, then it must be bad. The fact of the matter is, whether you are a conservative, liberal, communist, or whatever, some of the things the conservatives have done is good, needed to be done, just as some of the things liberals have done, even, yes, in the province of Ontario, are good and needed to be done. You know, not everything the conservatives did was wrong or bad, and certainly imposing visas on visiting Mexicans made a lot of sense. There were almost, as you pointed out, almost 10,000 Mexicans uh, declaring refugee status in this country in 2009. I I, I think you could have added up the next three countries and it wouldn't have touched the Mexicans. And not only that, but I mean, there there was a very serious problem. And of course, there were many changes made to the immigration laws uh, by Jason Kenney uh, above and beyond that. Believe it or not, some, some people from the United States were declaring refugee status. We had to put a stop to that as well. I wonder if that's something that the, uh, that the liberals will change that you know under liberal rule now well you know you know particularly if if trump becomes president half the country apparently is going to move into canada uh, maybe, cape, cape breton maybe yeah cape breton maybe we had better deal with that well you know are we going to allow tens of thousands of people to flee the united states from trumpism i don't know you better ask your liberal friends i guess <laughs> 
My goodness gracious. And, and of course, if even if they're rejected, they, they will get to appeal under the, the new liberal plan and, and get a very uh, uh, generous health care plan that most Canadians uh, do not get from their government plan. Yeah, this has, of course, been a bone of contention for a long time, and, and particularly with the 25,000 Syrian refugees who have poured into this country. They're getting health benefits that are not available to your grandmother or to me, for that matter. And talking about health benefits, you know, you were talking about the island of Sanity. I don't know how much sanity there was two days ago. I'm out, believe it or not, here I am almost 80 years old. I'm out on the on the street in in, in Stittsville playing basketball on the street with my two <laughs> grandchildren. Well, guess what happened? I made a beautiful hook shot, fell flat on my face, and now I've sprained my wrist. Oh, and I'm terrible. I am a terrible patient. I go whining around here, driving my wife crazy. So I don't know how much sanity there is there. But uh, uh, listen, once again, the the situation in uh, northern Alberta. You were saying last night that the uh, that uh, BC has one of the largest water bombers. And it was not allowed to come in. What, what's the, the story there? The, this is the uh, the biggest story uh, on the rebel last night. Um, our I'm going to try and get her on later. One of her com- uh, commentators, uh, Sheila Gunn Reed, found out that a private company. Uh, I'm just looking for their name here. Colson Flying Tankers is the name of the company, and they've got this giant plane called the Martin Mars. It can handle seven thousand two hundred U.S. gallons of water, or Flame retardant. Right. It's not been put into use, and the reason is the Alberta government didn't ask for it. We've already heard about uh, Justin Trudeau turning down the international help from the Russians, the Israelis. Several countries have said, what can we do to help? We want to offer help. And he said no. But this company says they, they put out a statement saying that they, if they flew into the area, they would actually face criminal charges. They have to wait for a provincial government, which is always the, the government in charge of something like this, to ask for help. And they didn't ask for the Martin Mars. They didn't ask for one of their C-130s that can handle 4,400 U.S. gallons. So these planes are just sitting there. And meanwhile, the government's saying they're doing everything they can. Boy, I I find that so hard to understand. First of all, I don't know why it would be illegal to come to another province's rescue. I don't understand the illegality of that. And I don't understand why Trudeau turned down offers of help, and apparently even Israel offered to help, but all offers were turned down. Now, we are fortunate that apparently about 80, I guess now they're saying 90% of the city of Fort McMurray survived. So we're very fortunate there. However, had we accepted some of this other help, who knows, maybe 95% of the city could have been preserved. I mean, the forest fire is still going. It's just not threatening the town anymore. We, we have to, I mean, somehow or other, I mean, we have forest fires all the time. Every single year, there's serious forest fires breaking out all over. We, we have to get a better plan. There has to be some sort of national plan to deal with this. First of all, a province shouldn't, you know, if you want to go in and help, obviously it's got to be coordinated. But, I mean, to say that, oh, no, it's illegal for you to come in and help, it doesn't make any sense. Well, no, no. It, but it, then what does make sense these days? <laughs> this is true. Quickly, I've got to ask you about the buses and Blues Fest. Uh, we, we constantly get these events told and groups told, you know what, we need you to we need you to set up near public transit. We need the big events near public transit. Then when they do and they get big, they stick them with a the bill. Well, of course, I mean, tra- well, you know the answer to all of this? Private, you know, our, our public transportation systems, 
everywhere should be privatized. Let Uber take over. They'll cut the cost in half, at least, and improve the service. It always makes me laugh when, when uh, you know, usage goes down. Well, maybe we should lower the price. Well, maybe you should improve the service. Very clearly, if not as many people are taking the bus, there's something wrong. And I don't think it's the price. I think it's the service. Already, taxpayers are subsidizing every single bus rider by about 55%. Uh, the, the, the answer, once again, privatize. We have seen time and time again with almost every service that's available, if you privatize it, the service goes up, the cost goes down. They've done that uh, not only in several cities across North America, but... Including Quebec City, by the way. And a city I know well, my parents' hometown of Glasgow, they rely a lot on public transit, and guess what? Privatized. Lowell, thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Good morning. That was Lowell Green. I'm Brian Lilly. When we come back, Conservative MP Michelle Rempel on the Mexican visa issue. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News at CFRA.com if you want to email me. Of course, if I'm going to tell you to email me, I should open my email. But if you want to join the conversation that way, it's Beyond the News at CFRA.com. And on the Twitter machine, Bill Carroll talks a lot about Twitter for an old dude. I still remember, Bill, uh, we were all forced to get on Twitter by uh, the same bosses uh, down at News Talk 1010 in Toronto. And uh, he he was feeling really good about his Twitter account and how many people were following him. And then he had me on and just offhanded asked, so, Brian, how many Twitter followers? And I forget, it it was a pathetic number compared to what I'm at now, about I'm over 20,000 now. Uh, And he he just said, oh. (laughs) But my Twitter handle, if you're on that... uh, that infernal machine is at Brian Lilly, at Brian Lilly, L-I-L-L-E-Y. In Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Post all the, post the podcast to the show there. So if you miss something, you want to catch it later, you can find the podcast on my Facebook page later on in the day. You can download it, listen to it on a drive, uh, sit back with a cup of coffee, a whiskey, whatever you want, and enjoy the show. Now, going to get to the, the issue of Michelle Rempel and the Mexican visa requirements in a moment. But first, I got a call from a local MP's office. Uh, Apparently, several of the MP's offices are getting calls from people worried that today is the deadline for the census, and if they don't fill it out, then they're breaking the law, and they'll be in trouble. And given how the... the, um, the liberals have promoted how this is such a, a great thing and they're bringing back this uh, the, this push for mandatory long form census and they brought back jail time. And it says right on the front, as John Robson said in his column the other day, it's very rude. Fill this out. It's the law. Apparently, a lot of people have not received their census forms yet. And they're worried that they will be breaking the law. So Gord Brown's office down in uh, Brock, Vegas, called out to the census folks who said no that's not the case today's not the deadline if you get your form tomorrow you fill it out as if it was may 10th so if you had three people living in your house on may 10th that's what you fill out even if your granny and her aunt move in uh, tomorrow you fill it out as of today what was your household like today Michelle Rempel is uh, was supposed to be joining us right now she's stuck in the house of commons debating time allocation that's the parliamentary procedure where the government shuts down debate. I'm not sure. 
I'm wondering if this is the budget because they've already shut down debate on assisted suicide. The Liberals used to scream about Conservatives shutting down debate. Well, now the Liberals are in power. They're doing it even faster, so fast that the NDP is chastising the Liberals for shutting down debate in half the time it used to take the uh, the Conservatives to do it. Uh, Michelle Rempel was in question period yesterday asking John McCallum questions about the issue I raised at the beginning of the show. Removing the visa for Mexicans. This is the big issue in the U.S., is illegal immigration. Will the liberal plan effectively mean we're going to be dealing with a flood of people coming into the country, maybe not illegally in the same way they are in the U.S., jumping over a wall, but they're going to jump the line because they're going to claim to be refugees when they're not? So Rempel just wanted to know, okay, you guys are all about the evidence. Fill us in. Have indicated that they plan to immediately lift the visa requirement on Mexico, and by their own admission, they haven't completed a standard evidence-based formal re- uh, review to justify this decision. So, given this, given the upcoming Three Amigos talk, I'm wondering if the minister can give the House a very specific answer on what security screening information they've used to justify this decision. The Honourable Minister of Immigration. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you to my colleague uh, for her question. As I've indicated before, this is a wonderful opportunity for Canada to reinforce our partnership with one of our two other North American partners, an opportunity to expand trade uh, and get jobs for all these middle-class Canadians looking for work, while at the same time we are completely mindful of the issues which the member raises and will be working hard to ensure that those concerns are met. Good opportunity to tell the House about that screening information, and he didn't take it. So I'll give him another chance. In 2008 alone, there were over 9,000 Mexican nationals who were scheduled for removal from Canada on the basis of inadmissibility. And the cost of removing someone from Canada on this basis can range anywhere from $1,500 to $15,000. So, can the minister please specifically? Tell the House of Commons what safeguards the Liberals are going to put in place to ensure that we won't see another wave of inadmissible asylum claims. Minister of Immigration. Mr. Speaker, again, I thank my colleague for her question. And juxtaposed with all the benefits I have mentioned, there are also concerns which she has identified. And I can assure her that we are in consultation with my uh, colleague at Public Safety with members of the Mexican government to ensure that all of the apparatus at our disposal regarding security, regarding dealing with asylum seekers, all of those matters are in place to deal with this situation. Did you hear any evidence in there? At the beginning, he was just saying how important Mexico is and they're great people. And, And then at the end, he's just talking and talking and talking. This is what John McCallum does. But they're going to lift this visa requirement, which is just a way of saying you've got to prove you have a reason to be here. They're going to lift it, and it's going to cost us hundreds of millions of dollars, if the past is any indication. I wonder if they'll do the same for people coming out of the Czech Republic and Hungary and other places that were sending us a pile of fake refugees. Lowell might be right. These guys don't care about the facts. They just want to rip apart anything that the conservatives did. 
They just want to change from, oh, conservatives did this? Let's do the opposite. They want to change from, this made sense, let's do it. Even the bureaucrats are saying, it does not make sense to lift the visa requirement from Mexico. Committee hearing last week, bureaucrats were asked about it, and they said, Mexico does not meet the threshold. As it stands, the rules would not apply. Now, if they lift the visa requirement for Mexico, then they end up having to have, well, answer uncomfortable questions from other countries. Like, why did you lift it for Mexico, but why do my people still need a visa? Don't think that won't happen. It absolutely will. Do you have thoughts on this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. We're hoping to get um, in touch with Michelle Rempel shortly. As I said, she was stuck in the House of Commons for time allocation uh, debate, but we'll get to that issue soon. Do you have thoughts on this? 521-TALK, 521-8255. Guy in Sarnia. Is it Guy or Guy? I go by Guy. Okay, Guy, you're calling in about the water bombers. Yes, uh, if that's possible, we could segue into that for a minute. Yeah, well, uh, we'll be bringing on Sheila Gunn-Reed uh, later on, who broke yeah. the story uh, about the uh, the water bombers from B.C. sitting idle. First of all, I am a pilot, not a water bomber pilot, but I understand very clearly cost and logistics for moving aircraft. Mm-hmm. No, make no mistake, it's a costly venture. I do have an associate who is a water bomber pilot, in Ontario, and he's currently on the Manitoba-Ontario border fighting the fires there. 97 drops one day. 97. Uh, Are you wow. kidding me? Now, when you take those Martin Mars bombers, they are on a lake in Port Alberni, Sprout Lake, I think it's called, and they're sitting there wheeling in the breeze, floating. When In Southern California, when the billionaires had their condos on Lake Elsinore were threatened, their $10 million condos were threatened, they hired those two water bombers. Now, the state of California had all the aerial resources of five states and with the ground support, et cetera. They could not touch that fire. Two days, they flew off Lake Elsinore with those water bombers, a three-mile freshwater lake, and they knocked the fire down. Are, are you lowered. talking about the big Martin Mars that I was discussing yes, earlier? Yes, sir. Yeah. And that was private money. They said, we want our condo saved. That trailer park, yeah, it can burn. We don't care about that. They don't have the money anyway. We got the money. They put those bombers on the lake. Two days, they knocked that fire down after the resources of five states couldn't put it out. My thoughts are this. Port Alberni to Fort Mac, I'm going to ballpark it at 200 knots, probably five or six hours of flying time. And cost. Make no mistake about the cost. Put them boats there. Put a wall of water around Fort Mac. A wall of water. Quebec sent four 415s, which is about a third of the size of the Martin Mars. Four of them. What did Ontario do? Yeah, we sent firefighters with uh, truck mud flaps on a stick. Are you kidding me? Windmill Winnie didn't see the need to send water bombers. Maybe they needed them for the Manitoba fires. Maybe, maybe. But at the end of the day, put a wall of water around Fort Mac. Now, the insurance companies are going to pay out something in the order of $9 billion that you and I are going to pay for. Well, we will pay for that. Well, yeah, everyone will. It's going to be increased premiums. Right. They're not in the business to lose money. They're mm-hmm. in the business to make money. So at the end of the day, we'll, would it not have been better to spend, I don't know, $5 million, move them boats to Alberta and have them ready to rock, put a wall of water? The, the petrochemical plants there, they didn't burn. Why? 
because they clear cut three miles around the plants. There's no threat of fire, none, because they clear cut that. There's no fuel for the fire to get to the plants. The fires that are burning now, Passport Mac, the lumber companies don't care. If they were resources that they could harvest, yes, yes, then they would care. Currently, they don't care because there's no roads there to get that lumber out. There's too much muskeg and too many you know, obstacles. Not worth it. Let her burn. It'll burn until the fall, until the snow comes. Let it go. That's happened many times in the past. Don't care. Yeah, but well, I mean, Fort Mac mo- could have been saved. Mostly we care about uh, about uh, human settlement and human life, and thankfully, I still don't believe any was lost due to the fire, due to accidents and other things. But um, thanks for the call. Thanks for the insight on this guy, because um, it, it's really puzzling what uh, Premier Notley's doing and what the Prime Minister's doing. Thanks for the oh. call. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. we got Michelle Rempel on the line. We'll get to her in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Michelle Rempel is the Conservative MP for Calgary Nose Hill. She is also the immigration critic for the Conservatives and joins me on the line now. Uh, Michelle, thanks for taking the time out. I know you got a, you're fighting the Liberals in the House over trying to shut down debate, so let's have a quick one here. Mexican visa requirements. I say this is going to open us up to a flood of bogus refugee claims again that will cost us millions and millions. Am I wrong? Well, certainly prior to the visa restriction being put in place, we saw a large wave of asylum claims that were false. And this has a huge impact on the country. Um, You know, one small issue being the fact that it does cost a lot to try and remove someone from the country whose asylum claim is is found to be false. So this is why we put the visa requirement in place. Um, The government hasn't done the work that it needs to do in order to lift that requirement. The government is also uh, just bringing back in, reversing the changes that you guys did to the refugee health care. Uh, that is, uh, you can de- you know, have differing views on whether it is, was gold-plated or not, but they're extending it to people. They're extending it once again to people who are denied. So if we get one of these bogus refugees coming, they're turned down and they say, no, but I want to stay and fight it. We're still paying for a healthcare plan that most Canadians can't get from their own government. Well, and this is why we put that particular change in place. Um, I know that the Liberals have said a lot, like they've tried to imply that we took away that program for legitimate asylum claimants, and that was not the case. I broke the story on it. That's a complete lie. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just for your listeners, I, it's an important di- distinction to make. But what, what your listeners also need to understand is that the department, so our public service, prior to lifting a visa uh, requirement, there's actually a really formal evidence-based review that happens looking at things like whether the government in question, so in this case the Mexican government, has taken certain steps to ensure that those asylum claimants would be reduced in terms of screening procedures, security. I, there's a whole checklist. And we've heard this repeatedly from committee, uh, from, from officials on the record at committee that they haven't done this. 
So, you know, it's going to, we're trying to put a little bit of heat on the government prior to them going to the Three Amigos conference at the end of June, where undoubtedly they'll have a lot of pressure from the Mexican government to lift the requirement. Um, but what all we're asking is do your diligence and safeguard Canadians from the, the abuse that we were seeing before the visa imposition was put in place. Now, there are other countries um, that got this visa requirement at the same time. I think the Czech Republic was one. But you were telling me that uh, other countries that look like they might get the – that they were worried because there was a spike in bogus refugee claims and the country itself acted to say, hold on, we're going to fix things so that we don't want our people to have visas. So we're going to work with you. We'll do what you need to do, right? Absolutely. And um – you know, I think that that's an important signal to the government when you've got a, 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 a you know a foreign national government saying, "Look, we recognize that there's a problem here, and we're going to re- uh, uh, to work to fix that." And that's what we'd look for from the Mexican government as well. And it's the responsibility of our government, the Liberal government, to show Canadians that that has indeed happened. I know the minister has kind of alluded to that, but really hasn't given any fact. And then it's also the responsibility of our government to show what safeguards have been put in place to ensure that the situation doesn't return to where it was. Because the thing that we don't want to have happen is for us to lift the requirement, see this flood of you know, similar issues, and then have to put it back uh, down the road. That's the worst thing that can happen. Um, you know, and I, that's the worst thing that could happen for the, you know, I know the minister's been talking about tourism operators and whatnot. I just, I think that the government needs to take a step back and ensure that the process is phased, and it's not what their campaign commitment said that they would do, immediately lift the visa requirement. That's just, it's, no. it's crazy. Well, they keep saying they're all about the evidence, uh, Michelle. The, if they're about the evidence, then they can't they can't just do what they said well, they would. That's it, right? I mean, we've sat in committee. We have a depart- census. Yeah. We're I, evidence. Well, it's their department officials are sitting in committee and saying, this work has not been... I, I actually think you did a story on how the minister tried to shut down my questioning of officials on this issue at yeah. committee, which was hilarious. Um, and at the end of the day, what's not hilarious is the fact that this review hasn't happened, and uh, it's really incumbent upon the government to do so. This is standard operating procedure, and it hasn't happened yet. And not a partisan issue. It's a, an issue of looking out for Canadians. Michelle Rempel, Absolutely. thanks so much. Take care. Michelle Rempel, Conservative MP for Calgary Nose Hill and uh, immigration critic. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll get to your calls. You want to join the conversation? 521-TALK, 521-8255 or star 580 on Bell Mobility. On News Talk 580 CFRA. Just having a little fun on the uh, Twitter machine here. With you until 2 o'clock. Also on the program today, we'll do our federal political panel. We'll check in with my uh, fave socialist, uh, Rick Smith of the Broadbent Institute. He... um, he wants more of your money. That's right. And uh, we'll take your calls as well. 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility if you want to join the conversation. Let's go to Heather calling in from Canada. Heather, you're on the program. Yes, good morning, Brian. Good morning. Um, I want to mention another little um, item on the ongoing march to undo uh, Stephen Harper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has to do with um, the, the Trudeau government. Um, reviewing their stance on accepting American war dodgers who are seeking refugee, refugee status in this country rather than fight in Iraq. And uh, 
the prime minister is claiming that he wants to be more open and compassionate compared to Harper, who is mean, mean, mean. Now, his father did accept uh, draft dodgers during the Vietnam War, which is a very unpopular war. But that was when conscription was in place, conscription. But yeah, and big difference between big a difference. draft and a volunteer force. Exactly, and it hasn't been in place since 1973. So I guess I would say to these um, war dodgers that if you, you don't want to support your government, if you think you can't support your government, maybe, just maybe you shouldn't sign up. Because my concern is, what message does it send to our allies and especially the United States, who, like it or not, it's our most important ally and partner. So and you can't cherry pick. I, I, I haven't heard anything uh, on this, so this is new to me. You, you're saying that they're going to undo the government are, pushing back against the war they dodgers? Are cha- they're, they're considering changing their stance and accepting war dodgers in this country. And that was in the news about, I think, four days ago. Yeah, Heather, I have to tell you, these guys... Um, Stephen Harper preached incrementalism, and that can be a wise policy, but these guys do not follow that at all. They are moving so fast in so many directions that it is incredibly hard to keep up. And a big part of the goal, as Lowell said, as you've said, just undo what Stephen Harper did. Let's change it because the conservatives liked it. Yeah, and damn the consequences. And I think this can have big consequences and I totally object to uh, dropping the visa restrictions uh, on on countries that we know have abused it and greatly abused it. Yeah, if Mexico was taking steps to ensure that their people weren't coming here uh, to launch bogus claims, if they were a, a willing partner, as Slovakia was when, when it looked like they might get hit with a visa requirement, then, hey, no problem. I, I'm not saying put visas on Mexicans because... I don't want Mexicans coming to Canada, not to sound too Donald Trump, but I love the Mexican people, right? It, it's not n- those who abuse it. Yeah. I, I, look, my parents are immigrants to this country. Uh, I, I have no problem with immigrants, with refugees, with any of that. But you know what you find when you deal with, with immigrant families that came here legally? They want everyone else to follow the rules and come here legally. They don't want special treatment or rules breakers. Heather, thanks for the call. You're welcome. Just posting up on Facebook about Justin Trudeau's trip to Washington. You know that um, it costs more than $25,000 to get him down there. More than $25,000, not for him, for his entourage to go down for the state dinner. He had his mother there. He had his in-laws there. He had the party bagmen. You know who wasn't there? Minister of Natural Resources. I don't know. When you're dealing with pipeline issues, when you're dealing with trying to renegotiate a softwood lumber treaty with your biggest trading partner for some of your biggest industries, don't you think you might want to take them and give them a little bit of face time with the decision makers in Washington instead of taking Stephen Bronfman? Yeah. Millionaire playboy Stephen Bronfman, who is also the Liberal Party's, uh, you know, chief fundraiser. Anna Ganey the Liberal Party president, Justin Trudeau's mother, his in-laws. These people all get to go. Jim Carr, Natural Resources Minister, eh, what do you got to talk to people in Washington for? You can find that up on my Facebook page now. Let's go to Don in Barhaven. Don, you're on Beyond the News. Yes, good morning, Brian. Morning. Uh, 
I'd have thought, uh, I just thought I'd run it past you, as far as Blues Fest, in order to uh, save costs, mm-hmm. uh, would it not be possible or feasible to uh, hire private security companies to sort of help reduce the number of actual police and paramedics required? Now, I know a security I, guard I, does I, not I, have... I think they do hire private security. I'd have to check with them, but I believe they do hire private security, but then there is a requirement for a, a certain level of police as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if they actually do meet that and how many, because the guards are, you know, they could do, uh, they could take care of uh, certain things, and anything beyond that, they contact the police. They're also first aid trained, so they can uh, deal with certain minor things. I, I just thought it might be a way, I wasn't sure what the ratio was to police to guards or paramedics or whatever. It was just a thought that ran through my head, yeah, you know, well, trying to think of how can we save money here and help help out Blues Fest. Well, I take it you're a fan. Yeah, I am. Okay, so let me ask you, what do you make of them being told you're going to pay or you won't get the buses? I mean, the city's essentially saying no buses for you. I think they they just want to, they just want to get a little bit of extra money. It's all money, money, period. Okay. They're not looking but, at the bigger picture. They're not seeing what it does for the city. It puts us. It puts us sort of quote on the map. Using an old expression, we're told it brings a lot of talent. It does. But we're also told if you're organizing anything big, oh, public transit, public transit. We've got to locate it near public transit. And so the whole of Breton Flats redevelopment is going to put the arena down by public transit. Guess what? The city is going to put a transit toll or tr- transit uh, levy on every ticket for every event at that new arena to pay for the public transit that's going to go right by the door. No, it doesn't make any sense. It, you just, know, again, they're looking to make make more money any which way they can. Unreal. Thanks for the call, Don. Thank you, Brian. Do you want to join the conversation? It's 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. Um, when we come back, not breaking just yet, but when we come back, I, I do want to bring up... Uh, this issue over at the University of Ottawa, Alan Rock. Yeah, that guy, the man that brought us the the gun registry, the $2 million gun registry that turned into a $2 billion gun registry, the guy that warned Ann Coulter before she even arrived in Canada not to say certain things lest she commit a crime. Yeah, that big believer in free speech, Alan Rock. Well, he's being raked over the coals because his university is not diverse enough. Yeah, not diverse enough. So they're not meeting quotas, apparently. We'll play a little bit of audio from that. Alan Rock coming up when we come back from the break. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. We have to try harder. We have to look farther. And we have to broaden our efforts to achieve the diversity to which we aspire. Last month, I appointed the first um, diversity and gender equity officer for the university. Uh, I've given her the responsibility of ensuring that we achieve the kind of diversity, both in terms of the number of women and others uh, that we aspire to. Oh, I'm not uh, going to miss that man when he's gone. Oh, wait, he's not going! Alan freaking Rock, the former justice minister, the man that can't get off the public teat, been running the University of Ottawa rather badly for years now. Well, he's leaving, but he's not really leaving. He's going to become a tenured professor. 
Yeah. Excellent. So we still get to keep paying him just like we did when he was an MP and a cabinet minister before bringing us the billion dollar boondoggle. But he's he's reacting to reports that he didn't meet diversity quotas for professors. Why? Why are there diversity quotas? Why? Best person for the job. I thought we were all supposed to be colorblind. I thought we weren't supposed to look at people's gender. We were supposed to just treat people as people. As Depeche Mode famously said, people are people. So why can't it be you and I get along so awfully? I think something like that. But just stick to the people are people line. Let's let's end it there. Why'd you go on too long, Brian? Amir Adaran, though, he's not happy. And he was on with Evan Solomon yesterday. And he says there really is a problem with the lack of diversity at the University of Ottawa. This man came to the university in 2008 as president. And at that time, the university was partially complying with its equity targets. And under Mr. Rock, equity for women, visible minorities, and everyone else has gone backwards. I I wonder how he identifies himself, other than serial complainer, human rights uh, commission filer. Yeah, this is a guy who... He's also very litigious, so I'll just shut my mouth now. Hi, Amir. To the phones, Gloria in Ottawa calling in about uh, the border issue. Oh, boy, I'm telling you, you know, after only six months in power, I mean, what is Trudeau doing to this country by opening up our borders to Mexicans, whether they've got a visa or not? And this is on top well, if they have if they have a visa, it's fine. It means they're coming here on business or for a visit. They're they're coming to see relatives, and they've met the requirements. Exactly, and they would go through uh, through our Im- our immigration process. Mm-hmm. But th- the thing is, this is on top of what he, he's t- uh, doing to our immigration system alone. I mean, he's right. They're going to bring in more uh, less economic. Immigrants to fill jobs that are needed here and more grandparents. Well, what exactly? And on top of that, what they are doing is he's, he is stacking the immigration tribunals with judges who are in favor of very few background checks, if any, on immigrants. I mean, you know, this is really incompetent and dangerous uh, because and, and he's, he, he wants to he's trying to weaken the immigration board itself. By refusing to uh, re- uh, reappoint any uh, conservative judges, only liberals, and and he by doing this, he's destroying the screening process that keeps terrorists and criminals out of Canada and keeps us safe. I mean, but th- sunny ways, glorious this, sunny this ways. Is, this is just totally dangerous. The, the the man is not. There has to be some kind of process to get that guy out. He's totally incompetent and dangerous for the whole well, country. He is, but always remember, and I said this at my talk in Canada at the uh, uh, the breakfast on the weekend. Don't think he's doing these things because he's dumb. You can uh, absolutely incompetent, but. Uh, we have to stop saying Justin Trudeau is doing this because he's dumb. No, he's doing no. this because this is what he believes, and it's his worldview. Thanks for the call, Gloria. Thank you. Let's go to Dave in the Glebe. Hey, Brian, how are you? Uh, well, I'm having fun today making fun of Alan Rock. So Good man. Good man. Well, just briefly on what Gloria said there, a few things. I think, I mean, when you start getting going on the rhetoric and, and attacking, um, it's creating this narrative that somehow we're going to have Terrorists will be pouring in. I, I, I agree with Gloria, but I think you got to focus on exactly what you said. 
they are making changes that are going to bring in, that are going to alter the process, whereby instead of bringing in highly skilled immigrants who can match and, and join the workforce, they're going to be bringing in grandparents who are already going to be putting strain on an already straining and aging population in our hospital system. That's what we got to focus on, and, and, and that's a concrete argument we can have because I, I vehemently disagree with the direction our and, government's heading and, and, and there's zero, zero evidence to back up the whole change on the Mexican visa. Before we run out of time, Absolutely. your thoughts on Alan Rock? On Alan Rock, yes. I mean, just a total, uh, total tripping over his laces on that. I, first of all, disagree. I think it should be the best person for the job. Of course, you should be trying to create an environment whereby we have people of different religions, different ethnicities, females in, in leading positions. But at the end of the day, best person for the job. And Ottawa, you just can't seem to get it, it right. No you, know, what you know that the federal government still has uh, jobs only open to certain groups. Sometimes I, it's only open to women, sometimes to visible minorities, sometimes to uh, aboriginals. Uh, in my, and in my yet days, their, their own stats show that they're, all those groups are overrepresented. I was going to say, in my days working at Service Canada with the Departmental Performance Report, the only target we ever met was that. Oh, man. Thanks for the call, Dave. Thanks. Take care. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. Let's head out with a little bit of Depeche Mode. In news from the energy sector, Enbridge of Calgary is expanding its investment in wind power. Enbridge is spending $282 million to buy a 50% stake in three offshore wind farms located off the coast of France. It's the company's second such investment. Last year, Enbridge paid $750 million for a 25% stake in a wind project off the coast of Sussex, England. Nova Scotia-based energy company Emera Incorporated has reported a decrease in adjusted earnings for the first quarter due to a decline in electricity sales because of unseasonably mild weather during the first three months of the year. At this hour, oil is up 84 cents at 44.32 a barrel. The Canadian dollar is up slightly at 77.22 cents U.S. I'm Michael Kane at BNN, Canada's business news network. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. You ready to give it to me? Tell me your mind. Let me have it. All right, let's go to Barry uh, calling in from Ottawa on Fort Mac and the Census. Yeah, hi, uh, Brian. Hi. Um, yeah, I start my rant here. Uh, I had some uh, few details about the last census, and I don't think that uh, we should have to have deadlines or uh, have stuff like this forced upon us uh, by whatever government's in power. The last census, I believe, was done under the Conservative government. And when I opened it, I guess I got the long-form version, and I got very extremely mad at the absurdity and the stupidity of some of the questions in it. Well, and you didn't have to fill it in. Yeah, no, I didn't. And uh, this is what I was going to get to, is how much money the government wastes or spends on that, because I believe it was just after the deadline for that one that... One night, uh, I have a knock on my apartment door at about 9 o'clock at night, and I look through my peephole, and here's this woman standing there, and she's got the government badge on, 
and some papers in her hand and stuff like that. Oh, she wanted to know why you hadn't filled it out. Maybe, but I didn't even answer the door. I thought, the heck with this. You know, you can't even call to say that you're going to come over or why does someone come over? But then a week later, the same thing happened again, and I didn't answer my door. I figured, well, if you're not going to call me, just like I don't call, I just don't go over to a friend's place and show up and knock on their door without calling them, letting them know, hey, is it okay to come over? But anyways... Yeah, I, I, I look, if, if that, they send me the uh, the loan form, uh, they might just get a photocopy of my butt sent back to them. Yeah, well, I I decided, I thought, well, if they're forced, going to force me, I'm going to, I came up with an acronym, N-O-Y-B, not, none of your business. And I was going to use that to answer a lot of the questions, because I had heard a rumor that they were using the census as a means of selling information to marketing companies and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure either. You, your quick it, thoughts on Fort Mac. Um, I trucked up there for years and I just, uh, the planning to me, uh, all the people that lost their homes should start a class action lawsuit against either the Alberta government or the federal government. Because when we have a natural resource like the oil sands and it's part of our economy, I just think it's really poor planning that the people that run Syncrude and all those oil sands plants, they realize how devastating a big, huge fire could be to their work or to their equipment or to their operating area. So they've got it all, all, all clear-cut, just like that gentleman, the pilot, called earlier said. Mm-hmm. And the fire doesn't affect them. Now, why, for years and years, a lot of these cities that are up in the bush, that are around resource-based economies, whether it's mining or oil or anything like that, why do these municipal governments or provincial governments not realize that we have to have a very wide, clear-cut area around the living area, around the whole city? Well, I think think for a start, Barry, people like trees. And a selling feature is is backs on the forest. Yeah, well, that's easily very cheap for the, the municipal government or whatever governments to sell property to developers and leave the clearing of the land up to the developers. And the developers aren't going to go in there and clear uh, 1,000 feet or 2,000 feet beyond their subdivision. And sure, we, you can still have trees. Even if you clear kind of wide area, you can either plant new trees or leave some trees there. But to leave a huge amount of trees there right next to these subdivisions and the living area of these kind of cities is to me preposterous. It's just poor planning. And they can always use that clear-cut area as either grazing land or parkland or bicycle paths or whatever. But then, you know, all cities expand with population growth, with business growth. All cities expand. So that clear-cut area would just be open to more expansion. And as soon as they expanded into that area, create a new buffer zone, create, move the clear-cut area farther out. Well, that may, way, it might be something they'll think of in the future, but uh, it's not something they thought of now. And they've been dealing with forest fires a long time. This one just turned. If you listen to the interviews that, that I did, that others did, it just turned from being outside of town and nothing to worry about to something huge. Let's go to John in Nepean. You're calling in about the Mexican visas. Yes, yes, I am. I'm quite, uh, quite, quite concerned about this. I, re- I remember a couple of years ago, before, uh, just before the visas came in, I switched on my TV and was watching the CBS Evening News, 6.30 News. Mm-hmm. Maybe 100, 100 million people watch that every night. So the guy gets on and he says, uh, you'd be surprised where Mexicans are going to, and it's not the USA. And it's, well, what are they talking about? And then the next thing you know, 
they're interviewing this fellow in Windsor, this Mexican guy with his big family. Yeah. And uh, they, 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 those, those, the people showing up in Windsor were mainly traveling by land across yeah. the United States, yeah. crossing at Detroit into Windsor and then claiming refugee status. Exactly. And anyway, they interviewed this fellow and he said, what do you think of Canada? And he said, oh, it's great. Of course, he didn't speak any English. And he said, what are you doing for food? Oh, he said, it's provided for. What about medical care? It's provided for. What about transportation? It's provided for. He said, this is a great place. And I was watching and said, holy smokes, this is going all across the USA. And then after, after that, uh, that interview, they went and they had a quick interview with, uh, with the mayor of uh, Windsor. And uh, he was beside himself. He said, geez, we have all kinds of people showing up in our offices looking for all kinds of services. And he was really upset. So really, Mr. McCallum should get on the phone, phone the mayor of Windsor, and I hope it's the same guy, and ask you know, what some of the ramifications are. I think it's really crazy. It, it truly is, and it, the conser- the liberals are just trying to uh, dismantle anything that was there. They've even talked about changing uh, the, the way the Safe Third Country Act works. Uh, some liberals have denounced that. That was brought in by liberals, oh. and that said that if you came from a safe country, if you were a claiming refugee status, but you'd just come from one of the safe countries, then no, you don't get in. You, you stay in the safe country you were in, claim refugee status there. Don't go refugee shopping. Yep. You know, we're, we're about to send back a guy who uh, the Immigration Board and a federal court have found was member of a terrorist organization. He's a Palestinian. But do you know where we're deporting him to? No idea. Sweden. Oh, That's man. his last country of uh, residence. Oh. He came here from Sweden and declared refugee status. I'm pretty sure Sweden's a nice place. Uh, Thanks for the call, John. Okay. Cheerio. Let's go to uh, Alice in Canada. Alice, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, hi, Brian. Yes, um, in the tape in the Metro paper uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was surprised, if not shocked, to see a picture of Harper, and it said that he's in Parliament and that he's only missed three votes since the new, um, you know, government took over. I really didn't think he was here in town because of all the backstabbing that he still continues to get. And um, so he is in the House of Commons? He's still in the House of Commons. He does not speak very much. He's not doing That's interviews. Right. He is uh, He is planning to speak at the Conservative Convention at the end of the month. Uh, I'll be there. We'll bring you the report from that. Right. But um, he, he is not. He's not part of the... Uh, Excuse me, he's not part of question period. He doesn't ask questions on behalf of the conservatives. He keeps a low low profile, which is becoming of a former leader. You don't want to be undermining the interim leader. You don't want to be undermining the leadership candidates. Uh, a recent poll said most conservatives would prefer to see Stephen Harper back in as leader. And, and there's been speculation that there's an attempt to draft him. No, no, he, he doesn't want the job back. I mean, I'm sure he would love it. But he's right. not going to do that. Right. And to unravel all the mess they're creating. However, but I do commend you, do him you highly. Miss, do you miss him yet? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Since the, the election, I went into a slump. But anyways, you know what? I commend him so much because if he even opened his mouth, I know how much backlash there would be. Oh, that crazy Arbor, la, la, la. You know, because he's still getting such negative vibes 
And I was shocked to hear that he was still sitting there listening to Trudeau, because if I were him, I would be sputtering. I would just be sputtering. I couldn't, <laughs> I, I just couldn't have taken all that. But anyways, I hope he knows how much he's dearly missed and loved by, you know, not true blue conservatives, but by people who have intelligence and a bit of sanity, because, you know, I hope, uh, well, Trudeau's good looks won't last forever. And um, his brilliance spouting out of his mouth is so ridiculous. I mean, when any speech he's given anywhere, he just talks in circles. Oh, yes, it's a big issue well, that our government is looking at. Very, But he doesn't actually say anything ever. We'll try, so anyways, we'll, we'll try and get Harper, uh, Prime Minister Harper, former Prime Minister Harper, to, to do an interview uh, around the time of the convention when he's ready to speak. Thanks for the call, wonderful. Alice. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Donald calling in from West Carlton about my favorite former Justice Minister, Alan Rock. Not just a Justice Minister. Remember, memory serves me correct. He also did a stint at Canada Post. He was also an ambassador as oh, well after right. that. Oh, right. Yes. Then, then of this course, man I, knows how to live off our money, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, then, of course, the uh, you know in the university. Now he's, he's going to be a tenured professor. What's he going to teach? Lactation engineering or what? <laughs> Apparently he's going to be a law professor. He was a lawyer before going into uh, full-time uh, uh, government work. Uh, so I, is he qualified to be a law professor? I don't know. Was he qualified to be justice minister? No. no. Well, you know, the thing is, a lot of these pensions, of course, like Canada Post, these things are cumulative. A lot of them, not all of them, but uh, most of them are cumulative. I wonder how, like, yeah, because Canada d- does he is separate, isn't it? Does he so stay nothing. at all of these places to get an individual government pension from each of them? Yeah, I don't, he doesn't get it from each, but most of them. Like, well, uh, but, of course, when but he's the, a cabinet, the university, takes, yeah. the university is not separate. the federal government, so that would be separate. And, and so is Canada Post, actually. Canada Post separated. is, yeah, it is a crown corporation. It's not the government. So, I mean, this guy could be walking away with several pensions. Well. You know, I should see if our friends at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation can dig into that for us. Makes you want to moo, you know. <laughs> Thanks for the call, okay, Donald. Bye. bye. Uh, let's see. Can we get to one more call? Yeah, let's go to Anne in Ottawa calling in about uh, visas and smokes. Okay. For, well, first of all, I think Trudeau is an absolute disgrace that he hasn't gone out there. I don't care what mealy-mouthed excuses we're getting. Harper would have been there. I mean, this is the worst crisis to humanitarian crisis in Canada since Lac-Megantic, and it's on a bigger scale. And Stephen so, Harper was uh, at Lac-Megantic uh, four days I know, after. I know. It, it, I'm sorry, it makes an oppression. It's not that you can't do anything. There's a thing called moral support. Um, but I, I did agree with him not going to Fort Mac right away while yeah, the fire's still going on, because yeah. then you're just you're drawing resources away from what's really important. But yeah. now he could be in Edmonton. He could visit yeah. with the, the yeah. people that left. Um, with a big I, fat I check or I, something. I don't you know? know what it actually accomplishes, but people seem to think it has to be done. It's about moral support. I also think it's very childish of Trudeau to be cutting off his nose to spite his face. Even the big, the good decisions, you know, like, I'm, I mean, I agree with almost everything Harper did, but, you know, I mean, even liberals have to admit some of the things he did were good, and, and he's just going back and, and changing them all. And I, I really worry for what this country is going to become under this government. I really do. I mean, anyone who has kids Can should worry about that. But the thing about the cigarette smuggling, 
that is a real pickle. Because I, I used to work at Health Canada in tobacco, and actually Alan Rock was the minister of smoking when I was there. Well, the minister <laughs> of Health Canada, and he's the one that that came out under. And I'm not saying anything bad about that, but... The, the problem with the cigarette smuggling is it's an RCMP issue, but also the, res, the uh, reserve is on the American side, and the Americans would have to do something about well, it, it to prevent them coming back. It so actu- it's a real problem. It actually straddles Ontario, Quebec, and New York State. But they'd all have to work together, and the Americans don't care. And, uh, and neither do the folks on the reserve. It's, uh, it's a yeah. good cash cow for them. And thanks for the call. Okay, bye. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580 CFRA. Twitter is a funny thing. I'm sitting here looking at people tweeting at me during the show, and and this guy keeps saying, thanks for the report on DGR. This report on DGR is great. I didn't know what he was talking about. Turns out it's a report I did a long time ago on Deep Green Resistance, which is an actual environmental movement that advocates above-ground and below-ground operations. And the below-ground guys, they're they're pretty much like saboteurs or eco-terrorists. Anyway... I don't remember the last time I talked about it, but there it is showing up in the the Twitter feed at Brian Lilly, if you want to follow me on Twitter. And uh, also uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, beyond the news at CFRA.com. Let's go to John calling in from the mighty 401. Good morning, Brian. Two points. Okay. Number one, I, on behalf of most Canadians, ask that our prime minister resign because he has failed to legally and morally protect the people of Fort McMurray. He has an obligation to get as much help as possible to put those people back on his on their feet. Uh, well, hold on, John. I, let's call for resignations on, on matters where he actually is able to. A natural disaster like this, it is the province that's responsible, and Premier Notley should perhaps resign after we found out Well, that would be a about... good idea if both of them stepped aside and perhaps well, we move on with the more important things, they're, they're... like running our economy and getting people back to the work and getting the necessary help. The uh, Trudeau should resign for many reasons, including the fact that, uh, well, I just don't like him as prime minister. But this isn't one of them. Now, what about the census? Well, the census, well, let me get tell you. I called Census Canada when I got my form, and I said to them, off the cuff, jokingly, I was born a female and became a male, and my spouse was a male and became a female. What do we put down for sex? And I was told, it's your choice. So what the heck are we having a census for if everything's your choice? Yeah, it's, uh, it's about evidence-based, and it's about data, and, um, and, well, in that case, it's about politics. That's what that whole issue is about. It, look... It, I'm going to try and talk to Daryl Bricker about this because people are exercised about the census. And uh, Daryl Bricker is the, the head of Ipsos polling firm. He told the committee, it, it, you do not need to require jail time. That's what this is about. That's what the mandatory law form census is about. It's about threatening you with jail, John, if you don't fill it out right. Thanks for well, the call. They asked for comments at the end. You yeah. know what I put? Give them a good one. I said, this is a waste of taxpayers' money. Thanks for the call. 
Let's go to last word. Tom calling from the West End about Alan Rock. Surprised a bunch of people called in about Alan Rock. I thought it was just my hobby horse. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, my, my, I call Brian, uh, well, Brian, or excuse me, uh, Alan Rock, everything he touches turned to stone. Uh, gun registry, uh, at Ottawa U, the, the hockey uh, scandal, uh, and, and the worst one I think was the blood scandal, the kind of blood scandal where they picked a specific date. And if you had your transfusion before this date, uh, because they weren't testing the blood, I'd, da, 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 I'd forgotten about that. That was the worst that affected people so badly. I think he should, he should be ashamed of himself. And well, just, that's the one that bothers me the most. Just, uh, and I don't, I'd have to go back and read up on that again. It's been a while, Tom, but let me just say, you mentioned the hockey team. Uh, this man, demonized the hockey team, convicted them in the court of public opinion, did not give them due process, and now he's going to go become a law professor. Well, and this at a university where he doesn't have uh, diversification of, of his staff heads, right? Yeah, well, why doesn't he resign that cushy job and let a woman or a minority take it? That's If he believes in what he says, that's what he should do. Thanks for the call, Tom. Okay, thank you. Coming up just after the top of the hour, we're going to bring on uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed, who brought us the story of the why the big water bomber is sitting idle instead of helping the fire in Fort Mac. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We got Carmen Levy coming up, CTV's technology reporter, on um, a few of the latest tech stories coming out. We do this every Tuesday. Uh, later on in the program, Rick Smith, my favorite socialist from the Broadband Institute. And I just got word that Stephen Crowder, Canadian who is actually one of the um, leading conservatives, up and coming conservatives in American media, is filed suit, filed suit against Facebook. We'll try and get a hold of Crowder and see what we can do. But right now, Sheila Gunn rejoins me from somewhere near Edmonton, Alberta, rebel commentator Sheila Gunn-Reed. SGR, how are you? I'm good, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well, but I'm betting that uh, that you're a little disturbed at the news that you broke yesterday about this big water bomber. Well, yes. I mean, the news really isn't about the Martin Mars. That's Canada's largest water bomber. It's about the fact that it sat idle for so long with no government contracts that the company itself moved it to um, take part in some air shows in Wisconsin. And um, the company that owns Martin Mars, the Coulson um, Water Tankers, they had on standby waiting for our government to ask for it, a C-130 water bomber, that's the world's second largest water bomber, and a flight crew waiting for us to give it the go-ahead, and it never happened. Now, why didn't he just fly in? <laughs> well, that's funny, because um, Coulson Water Tankers was getting so many um, requests and demands that they just come in and help. They had to release a statement saying that they can't do that, even if they, did do, even if they wanted to, and if they did do that, they'd be facing some very serious charges. So this water bomber, and I was reading off from your story earlier, and if people want to find it, it's up at the rebel.media. The headline is, 
Shocking, here's why Canada's largest water bomber wasn't available to fight wildfire in Fort Mac. It's not available because the provincial government under Premier Rachel Notley didn't ask for it. Is that correct, Sheila? That's absolutely correct. And there's and there's even more to this story. It's sort of unfolding sort of as the days go on, a little bit more comes out and comes out that um, from February 2nd to April 29th, the province had these open tenders for water bomber contracts. Mm-hmm. And April 29th, the government cancelled these contracts. Wait, so what do you mean they cancelled? They cancelled the tender? or They, can, they did. They cancelled the tender. So the government actually hired fewer water bombers this year than last year. So in um, 2014, Alberta had 22 water bombers on contract. This year, there was only 16. Now, to give a little bit more history to that, April was a ridiculously crazy fire month for us. At some point in the month, we had three times the seasonal average of fires breaking out. Um, I think around April 20th, um, Highway 63, that's the main highway in and out of Fort McMurray. That was forced to close because of uh, a massive wildfire outbreak. Uh, It was just all over the province, Parkland County, west of Edmonton. They declared a state of emergency, and that was on about the April 29th or April 19th or 20th. And then 10 days later, they canceled these open tenders for the water bomber contracts. How are people starting to react? I mean, I know in the first few days of a disaster like this, nobody wants to get political. No one wants to point fingers. I know that here in Ottawa, it was all very cordial between uh, the Liberal government, the Conservative opposition, the NDP. It was, we're worried about the people in Fort Mac. We want everyone to get out. Never seen an evacuation on this scale before. Let's make sure everyone's okay. Is that part over in Alberta now? Are there fingers being pointed and questions being asked about how this was handled, how it could have been prevented? It's it's starting to happen. It started to happen yesterday in the Alberta legislature. Um, the agricu- agriculture and forestry critic, Rick Strankman, he was asking questions of the government about the cancelled water bomber contracts. Now that everybody's safe and the the um, the situation is starting to settle, people are moving from, oh my gosh, is everybody okay, to why did this happen? Why were we so ill-prepared to deal with something that blew up this quickly? Hmm. Okay, so what what were the answers from the government yesterday? <laughs> you know they don't give answers in question period. <laughs> no, it was, it was just a lot of mealy-mouth nonsense. I mean... They were asking specifically about the cancellation of these water bomber tenders, and it was just, we're going to study this, we're going to learn, we're going to move forward. So there's no hard answers coming yet, and I, I think it's going to be a long time before we get some. Okay. The um, talk radio, I'm guessing, is, is lighting up. You guys don't have people like Dave Rutherford anymore, though, uh, but are talk radio in, in Edmonton and Calgary starting to go ballistic on this? I noticed yesterday on Danielle Smith, Danielle Smith show in Calgary that people are starting to ask why and Edmonton is a little bit more progressive as you know (laughs) I'm probably the most conservative thing in and around here but uh, well I do I do call it Redmonton (laughs) well you know what Ralph Klein said about Edmonton you know it's nice but too many socialists and mosquitoes yeah (laughs) but you know they are starting to ask a lot of questions in talk radio coming out of Calgary which tends to be a little bit more conservative so I mean, people want answers, and the story I did yesterday 
just blew up. I went to bed with, you know, a, a few thousand views. I woke up this morning and it was, you know, the busiest story on the site. So people yeah. are really interested. And if you want to find this story, it is at the rebel.media by Sheila Gunn Reid. Let me just read uh, part of this statement from the, the company that owns the Martin Mars. And by the way, earlier, Sheila, I had a, a, a pilot call in. He's not a water bomber pilot, but he is a pilot and is friends with. In fact, one of his friends is up fighting a fire on the Ontario-Manitoba border right now. So he knows about these issues, and, and he was raising raising this issue absolutely. And uh, William wrote in by email to say that he'd you know emailed about it and wondered where it was as well. But the Martin Mars can handle 7,200 U.S. gallons per dump. They say our C-130s are the largest propeller-driven air tankers in the world with a 4,400 U- uh, U.S. gallon capacity. I was watching a news story yesterday. The, the uh, planes that the, they were using and touting were about 3,000. So both of these offer a significant increase in terms of firefighting capacity, and they're just sitting idle. It, it, it yeah. is truly unreal, and, and it must make you angry. Well, it does. I mean, I wonder if we had accepted this offer of help from Coulson sooner, what, what the difference could be. I mean, surely this water bomber can help now, not, not the Martin Mars. It's moved on. It's down at an air show in Oshkosh and might be getting sold off because no one will, will, will sign the contract. Well, I mean, these companies do have bills to pay, but there is a C-130 sitting waiting there for us to get access to. And And, and it's just not, the provincial government rejected that, and Trudeau rejected international help from the Russians, the Israelis, and others. It, it, it does leave me shaking my head and wondering why. Well, I mean, I, that I really the government said they just don't see the need. That was the that was the government's response to the offer from Colton Water Tankers. If there was no need in Fort McMurray, when will there ever be a need? All right, Sheila. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Brian. Sheila Gunn-Reed, Rebel commentator. You can find the story up at The Rebel. And uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes with Carmi Levy, technology analyst for CTV. We're going to switch from serious to fun gadget stuff. Stick around. Some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. What is the most um, influential gadget that you've ever used? Is it an electronic gadget or maybe it slices, dices, and does more? Carmi, uh, Carmi Levy is uh, the tech analyst for CTV. He joins me now on the phone. And, uh, Carmi, there's a, a best of list. This is from Time Magazine, 50 most influential gadgets of all time. But none of them slice and dice, do they? Uh, no, I was looking, I, you know, especially given the fact that the founder of KTEL recently passed away, I was expecting <laughs> something there, you know, the Julianne slicer or something, but no, no, nothing on that list, unfortunately. The Apple iPhone is number one. Go figure. And, uh, and I, I think part of it, I, I call it the recency effect, right? Because this is the gadget that most of us are familiar with. It's the one that really has uh, sucked most of the oxygen out of the room for most of the last decade. And so I think it's almost like an easy win. Just, you know, pick the number one. It's sold hundreds of millions of copies, continues to top every other list. So may as well make that number one. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking the iPhone wasn't the first smartphone. It wasn't the first 
successful portable mobile device. And so I'm really glad that there were 49 other choices. Well, uh, yeah, because, that, well, yeah, yeah. the BlackBerry 6, uh, 6210 is at number 24. Yeah. Without uh, that, do we get to the iPhone? We don't, um, because the BlackBerry 6210 was the first device that really combined a phone with a with a, a device that actually did messaging and web, and we, no one remembers it anymore. It was that sort of the blue one, but it was uh, it, it was kind of really the the analog, the the template, if you will, for smartphone every smartphone that we use today. And so you don't want to forget those because. The iPhone didn't just materialize out of thin air. It was built on successive advancements from a whole bunch of other products, some clunky, some not, over the better part of the previous 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years. Uh, you know, Apple didn't just wake up one morning and think of it. Uh, there were some other failures that uh, preceded it. All right, let's go over some of the others. And by the way, just in terms of smartphone and mobile, uh, I was just speaking with um, a fellow uh, commentator at The Rebel about the a big story that's going on. Earlier today, they sent out a a, a a graph of who's on it and what they're watching on. 60.82% uh, mobile, 14.67% tablet, only 24% reading news stories on a, on a desktop. And that's no surprise there, because if you think of it, your smartphone is the one device that's within arm's, arm's reach of you from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. We are spending more and more screen time with our smartphones than with and, anything else, and, and the numbers bear that out. And less and less with the Sony Trinitron, which <laughs> that's, Trinitron. that's number two, and that was the TV that popularized color television. Yeah, I, I mean, Don't you love driving by the old-fashioned motels and they still have color TV as one of the selling features on the sign outside? I love that. It's one of my, it's one of my earliest memories as a kid, you know, that, you know th- that it was still out there. The color TV was a big deal in some parts. And today we don't even think about it because every TV is color. But there was a time when, when you know, color was a very expensive upgrade in a world where a lot of people for a long time didn't even have a TV to begin with. It was the Trinitron technology that really blew it big time. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the TVs that we have today owe a whole lot, a debt of gratitude to Sony for bringing this technology to market and making it affordable. Oh, yeah. One more on this list. And I got to ask you about some of these other stories. We could spend the whole time talking about this list. Uh, we're yeah. talking about uh, talking with Carmi Levy from CTV uh, about the top 50 influential gadgets as compiled by Time magazine. Number four was the Sony Walkman. Number six was the Victrola record player. Both of those going well above the iPod. And again, I think it's one of those you don't get to uh, number nine, the iPod, without the Walkman or mm-hmm. the Victrola. That's right. And, and this is why I was glad they took the old technology because the, the Victrola was introduced in 1877. The, tra- the, the Regency TR1 transistor radio uh, introduced in 1954. The Brownie camera introduced in 1900. And if you look at devices like the iPod and the iPhone, uh, they really were just super high-tech evolutions of those early versions. What I loved about the, the first versions of those technologies is that we, we forget them now, of course, because we haven't been able to buy them for decades. But uh, they took a technology that had previously been very expensive, only available to a rarefied few, and blew it wide open so that anybody could afford it. And to me, that's the mark of a truly influential technology. If, if it makes the if the product makes this tech go mainstream, then it's, it deserves its place on this list. Uh, let me ask you about the um, what do we have time for? Well, we've said enough about smartphones. Let's skip to ransomware. This is becoming a big uh, online security threat. What caught my eye? We talked about this a little while ago because of uh, a hospital, I think, in Los Angeles that was dealing with this. Mm-hmm. And um, but 
only 17 percent of attacks, it looks if I'm reading this correctly, targeted the corporate sector. Are they targeting regular individuals now? You and me, 83 percent. And that's the scary thing is that everybody thinks, oh, I'm not going to get attacked because I'm not worth it. They'll go after the big bank or the big hospital or the big insurance company or the government agency, where the reality with ransomware is, is that we make ourselves incredibly easy targets. um, And we are just as lucrative a target as that big hospital is. As a result, 83 percent of all attacks are being focused on people like you and me, not on the corporate sector. And that should make all of us stay awake at night. All right. Uh, quickly, what do we do? Uh, what we do is we make sure that we've got security software installed, not just on our computers, but all of our mobile devices. Um, we always, we also don't follow a link home just because you got it. So just because I emailed you, Brian, saying you've got to look at this video, don't click on that link because it'll probably take you to a website uh, that is filled with ransomware. And the instant that you click it, you're done. Your machine is now infected. Oh, man. Now, you, now you've scared me. I'm going to go <laughs> but, off and cry in the corner and eat lunch. But if you back your data up, so like, you know, you, you can get infected by ransomware. But if all of your pictures and your music and all the things that are near and dear to your heart, if you stored them offline and they're available on a backup drive or they're out in the cloud somewhere not reachable, uh, even if your computer is affected, all you need to do is wipe it, restart and keep going. It's for people who never back their data up. They should be crying. They should be worried. And that's this is a siren call. A, take care of your security software, but B, also look at your data. If it hasn't been backed up recently, make sure that happens now. Good talking to you, Carmi. Thanks, Brian. Great being here. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Stick around. More to come. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to say, I don't know what's going on. We're supposed to have a... um, Supposed to have a, a federal political panel right now. You get somebody from the right, you get somebody from the left. Apparently, apparently, um, you know, the liberals don't want to talk. I don't know. Are they scared of questions? I don't bite. It's okay. We're going to try and have uh, Warren Kinsella. Who needs other liberals when you got Warren Kinsella? Warren normally joins me at night on a Wednesday, except when he's, you know, off in Mexico or wherever whatever hotspot he was away at vacation for. But you know what? It's fine. We don't need a liberal because we've got Michelle Austin. She's a senior advisor at Summa Strategies, and she sits on the conservative side of the fence. So we're just going to kick around some ideas now. Hello, Michelle. How are you today? I'm well. I, I want to ask you about something. And um, yeah, I, I just thought of this now. So I'm going to put Dave, the producer, on the spot. Um. The liberals say that they're all about one thing, and I want to play you a clip of what it's about. They say that they are about evidence, Michelle. And you're going to hear a few MPs. Let me know when you're ready, Dave. Uh, You're going to hear a few MPs in the House of Commons saying that they make all their decisions based on evidence. But I'm starting to doubt this. Do we have it ready, or did did I mesh up? Okay, let's hear it. After 10 years, evidence-based decision-making is back, Mr. Speaker. The evidence clearly does back up the fact that uh, Mexico is an extremely important friend and trading partner, our second partner in uh, North America. 
the evidence does back up the terrific importance of tourist dollars from Mexico, which were largely lost as a consequence of this action by the previous government. And the evidence does back up the actions that we are taking to mitigate and deal with the concerns that the member has raised. What we're trying to say again is we want to make sure we focus on making sure that people participate in the process. We're focused on sound evidence-based policies. We want to make sure we're driving good policies based on good evidence and good quality data, and that's what this announcement is about. M- M- Michelle, today's the census deadline, and uh, that was all about evidence-based policy. And yet they keep making decisions that don't seem to have any evidence to back them up, the latest being uh, lifting the visa requirement on Mexicans coming to Canada. Well, I, I would even argue that they're not making decisions. So, so let's, let's look at it from, from two perspectives. Evidence has never been away. I mean, any good civil servant, and Ottawa is full of them, is obviously making recommendations to their ministers based on the evidence that they have in front of them. And, and hopefully the quality of the evidence is good. And it, there's no shortage of data out there in this era where you can get instant analytics. So I, I don't buy the argument that evidence is back. Evidence never went away. What <laughs> the liberals thank are, you. What the liberals are trying to tell you or trying to spin is that they're not political decisions, that the liberals are free of politics, that they are making decisions based solely on facts. And that's, you no one in their right mind is going to believe that. What if the evidence says in order to supply Ontario with good, clean power, you need 26 nuclear power plants tomorrow? What if that's what the evidence says and the liberals don't like it? Of course they're not going to accept it. So I think really what this is all about is saying that you need to uh, not think of the decisions that we're making in a political perspective. This is just the evidence, and I don't think that Canadians are going to buy that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, two of their decisions, again, they they said all through the campaign that they would do evidence. They said um, you know, after the election campaign was over, they said they were all about evidence. And then two of their first decisions, ban oil tankers off the West Coast without even studying it. And they said no to an expansion of the island airport in Toronto, which, by the way, um, would have brought in planes that are quieter, more fuel efficient, environmentally friendly, and the class-leading Canadian-made Bombardier plane that we're now going to subsidize. So there there was no evidence in that. And do you have thoughts on this this idea on the – you worked in various departments, and I can't remember all of them. Did you ever work in immigration? No, thank okay. heaven. <laughs> well, it's a big headache file, but in 2008, the government you were part of put in visa requirements on uh, Mexicans coming to Canada, along with other countries, because it was 9,000 uh, refugee claims, most of them bogus. The liberals are just going to lift this now. I, I think that we are, uh, I, I don't want to go all Donald Trump and say, let's build a wall, but I think it's going to open us up to false claims again, and that costs a lot of money just to deal with them. Yeah, well, you know, and we have to, I think, divorce evidence from process, right? There's due diligence that has to be taken before you present the evidence. Have I, have I got the right information? Do I have the right checks and balances in place before I actually collect the evidence? And I think we're confusing, and we have to be careful confusing what is process versus what is evidence. So a lot of these decisions that they're making that they're calling evidence aren't. They're, they're, they're strictly how one does business. And we have a new CEO in, in um, 
Justin Trudeau, and he wants to conduct business differently. But don't confuse um, making it easier and, and dropping requirements with evidence. The, uh, the Liberals are being criticized by the parliamentary budget officer today. Uh, they had promised, along with the other two parties in the election, to reduce the, the tax rate on small business. And then they decided, no, we're, we're going to leave it where it is. The parliamentary budget officer, who they used to sing the praises of every time he criticized the conservatives, uh, the PBO is saying this is going to increase government revenue a little bit, but it's going to cost jobs. Uh, Again, this is just trying to pay for their political decisions by keeping taxes up on on small businesses. Oh, couldn't agree more. And I think that... You know, you look in any community in, in, in Ottawa, and I'm from Canada, and I look at all the wonderful small businesses on Hazeldean and, and how much choice that we have. And wouldn't I might like to have more? And one of, the, one of the things that allows people to take risk is to know that their tax rate is low so that if something horrible happens and they misjudge that, that, they can, that, that it won't be too costly. And we also know that entrepreneurs are, are serial business startup people. And so I think that uh, what's happened here is that the, the new government has realized that they have a big fiscal problem. They're spending money even before it comes in the door. And so they've decided to, um, to hold back on this promise. And they probably think that that these kind of individuals didn't vote for them anyway, small business owners. Uh, this is, so they've, they've made a political decision here, frankly. I mean, the evidence is presented by the parliamentary budget officer that this would be great for helping to encourage jobs across the country, and they've decided not to do it. So, I mean, I think we're all extremely disappointed, but I can't say that we're surprised. Well, it, you know, it'll hurt my pocketbook, but... It, it will not create the jobs, so that they're going to bring in more revenue from small business taxes, but they could be bringing in more revenue from income taxes if people had jobs. Well, absolutely, and you know the, the, all the things that you can you can you can do with a job, whether you're a student. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that we're coming into that period of time where students are looking for jobs, and small businesses are often the easiest fastest way for students to, to find a job and, and what a better way to learn about what the real world is about than to work in a small business where you're jack of all trades. So, you know, I, I guess we, it's up to us to keep, keep uh, the Trudeau government looking at this issue and making sure that they understand that small business is the engine of the economy. And it's not just about creating revenue, right? It's about creating a diverse, vibrant local economies that will fire up the, the national economy. But apparently the decision's been made and... and not a good one. No. And, and not based on evidence, once again. No, no, I would argue also. <laughs> but, I mean, who are we? I'm Brian Lilly, and I'm speaking with Michelle Austin. She's a senior advisor at Summa Strategies, in case you're wondering who we are. And uh, she is also a, a conservative strategist. You held various positions in the government. I believe you were involved in the last campaign. Let me ask you this. Yep. I've been writing the last few days, and I'm going to continue through the week. It, it, it's based off of a talk that I gave at the Kanata Carleton Conservative Association last week. Um, looking at how the Republicans in the U.S. are ripping themselves apart and they're breaking into factions, and that's not good for them if they want to win. And so at, at the talk and in two columns and videos since, I've discussed how you've got a, a party is always a coalition, and the conservatives weren't beaten that badly in the last election. If they want to come back and win in 2019, you don't win by kicking people out of your tent. 
you win by growing. Your thoughts on on that? Because you you hear everything from just talk about the economy, get rid of SOCONs, uh, drop tough on crime, all these things that have been winning issues in various ways for the conservatives over the years. People are saying, throw them all overboard. And, And it doesn't make sense to me. Um, I hope people aren't saying that. I, I hope that, that the Conservative Party, at least the one that I know and I'm a member of, of has, has now got the ability because we've had a change in leadership. And I think that the interim leader, Ronna Ambrose, has been very clear that we need to change our tone and our outlook. I mean, we have to be, we have to be good neighbors and we have to listen. And we, it's, we can listen respectfully and still disagree. So I don't think it would be wise for the Conservative Party to... Uh, say to anybody that they're not welcome because they fall back on these sort of dogmatic approaches to what we would say are um, socially conservative issues. Um, so I think that the, the, the party is really slowly getting the picture. Um, and But the, what we're struggling to do, and we're learning, I think probably even faster than, than most people would have thought that we could, is to reach out and listen more. And I think that's going to be very key to moving forward for, for the Conservatives. One of the problems, I think, Stephen Harper certainly had a pragmatic approach to power. He picked issues where you would be left scratching your head saying, that's not a Conservative approach. But it was a winning approach. But the problem was that he didn't do it sort of, he didn't express himself very well. We didn't understand why he was doing it. He never did it with a smile on his face. He just did it because it made sense. And we all left saying, oh, I guess it makes sense. Does it make sense? So I think what we, the conservatives, have to learn to do, and we are trying and learning learning now that we, you know, this we 10 years we didn't do this. So we've, we've, we're, our muscles have atrophied here, is reaching out and trying to understand better what it is how we can communicate where we're going and, and, and how we can listen better. As my friend John Robson says, say it with a smile. Exactly. Uh, people keep, uh, w- as soon as someone emails me, Michelle, and says, are you just an angry old right-wing guy that yells a lot? I think, one, you don't know me at all. I'm not that old. And, and, and two, I laugh half the time on the radio So because politics is a lot of fun. Oh, my goodness, if it wasn't, why would we be doing it, right? I mean, sure, I hope it is. And you do, actually, politics is all about people and, and, and reaching out. And if you find you're a politician and you can't talk to someone, maybe you're in the wrong profession. Perhaps. Michelle, thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Brian. Take care. Michelle Austin, Senior Advisor at Summa Strategies. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. So we were telling you earlier about the water bombers sitting idle in British Columbia. And the fact that the owners made it known to the province, that province of Alberta, that these are available. Biggest water bombers going. And nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, now, Justin Trudeau, so that's the premier being criticized over this. The premier is being criticized because it's the provincial government that has first responsibility in terms of ensuring that the forest fire, the emergency is taken care of. And now Justin Trudeau is facing criticism because while the province is in charge of actually looking after the fire, when it comes to other countries offering assistance, 
Well, that's got to be up to the federal government. The federal government says yay or nay, we'll let you in. And then if we say yay, then that country would go and would work with the province of Alberta. They would be coordinated by their emergency management team to say, okay, uh, the fire's spreading here. We need to concentrate on this area. And so whether it's uh, ground crews or air bombers or whatever, they would be coordinated by the province. But it's not up to the province to give authority for a foreign entity to come into Canada. But now Justin Trudeau's facing criticism because there's been a lot of talk about Russia offering international assistance, but they were not alone. In fact, in addition to Russia, our northern neighbor, we've also had offers of assistance from the United States, our southern neighbor, from Mexico, from Australia, where they fight forest fires. They know what they're doing. Taiwan, Israel, even the Palestinian Authority. They're all reported to have offered assistance. And the response from Justin Trudeau in each and every case from his government has been to say no. In fact, on Monday, he said there's no need to accept any international assistance at this point, but we certainly thank everyone for their generosity. These offers were coming in last week. They were coming in last week when the area around Fort McMurray was not only being threatened, but it was spreading. How does it make sense for them to just say no? I know that it can be difficult to to coordinate that many logistics. I know that it can be difficult to say, okay, we've got to organize Taiwanese and Australian and, and U.S. planes coming in to help us here. But when the fire was spreading and they were thinking that it was going to be twice the size overnight, isn't that maybe a good time to say, you know what, we need help. And maybe you don't take the international help, but maybe you actually use the resources available to you in Canada. Like the Martin Mars water bomber, which sat idle, was on offer, and is now at an air show where apparently the owners are looking to sell it off because maybe he charges too much. I don't know. But when it's that dire and the cost is going to be great if you don't put the fire out, are you really going to haggle over the cost of how much it costs to get the, the, the plane up in the air, the crews operating it, dropping water or flame retardant? I don't know about you, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Drop me a line on this, beyond the news at CFRA.com, or you can tweet at me, at Brian Lilly. That's the Twitter handle, at Brian Lilly, and Facebook, Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Got lots more to come on the show. Don't go away. Beyond the news. Resistance is here. Beyond the news with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Just hearing more about what's going on with MPs' offices, and if any MPs' offices are listening, um, get in touch with us here at the station. Let us know what you're getting, because what I'm being told is that there's a lot of calls going out from people worried that they're going to be in trouble with the law if they don't do the census by today. Some people haven't received their packages in the mail. 
you either have to have the paper form or you have to go online and do it, but you, I think you need the code. I haven't done mine. I don't know. But people are now worried because they've heard it's the law. You must fill it out. And you've got seniors calling up an MP's office saying, well, I don't have the paperwork. Am I, am I going to be in trouble? Am I going to be going to jail? The fact is, according to what the folks over at StatsCan are now saying, is that it doesn't have to be done today. I don't know. This is this is what they're saying now. But if if you heard on the news today is the today is the day, but they're saying today is the day that you have to. If you get your package tomorrow and you fill it out, you fill it out as if this was today. It's it's a bit of a mess up by this government, and I think their heavy handed way of talking about it's the law, you must fill it out, and all of this. I think that that is quite frankly scaring people. I know liberals were ecstatic. They had their little afternoon delight the day that the census form started showing up in the mailboxes. But those were just the data geeks. Those were the partisans. I think there's an awful lot of regular people saying, um, I don't know, I'm a little worried. So if you're in an MP's office, let me know what you think. Now, Facebook is, of course, denying these allegations. They're denying the allegations that they ever, ever were suppressing conservative news. They are responding to a story, I think it broke on Gizmodo, news website in the States, several different news curators, former employees, coming forward and saying, yeah, we we were told not to put things in trending, even if they were, We were told to boost things that were not popular, that were not being shared. So if people started talking a lot about Mitt Romney during the 2012 election, yeah, tap that down a little bit. Tap that down. We don't need to talk about that. If people were talking about CPAC, no, not our cable channel here in Canada, but the Conservative Political Action Conference that happens in Washington, D.C. every winter, Oh, CPAC's trending? Yeah, we don't need to have that. Rand Paul? We don't need to talk about that. Trust me, when Rand Paul does something, or at least before he flamed out in his presidential campaign, when Rand Paul did something, it trended. If it was allowed to be just natural, it trended. But unfortunately, unfortunately, Facebook appears to have done this. Gizmodo talked to several different employees. Not just one, several. They all told the same story. So I mentioned this earlier, and if we can't get them on today, we'll get them on tomorrow. Stephen Crowder is a Canadian who lives in the United States now. He moved down to Michigan years ago. And he's he hosts a talk show down there. He does a lot of online media. You've probably seen his videos. They get shared quite a bit. When, when the whole issue of Christian Bakers being prosecuted for refusing to do a gay marriage wedding cake was going big in the States, because he lives near Dearborn, Michigan, Dearbornistan, one of the most constant, that's what the locals call it, not me, one of the highest levels of uh, Muslim uh, population in, Can- in the United States is Dearborn, Michigan. He went there and he started going into 
uh, bakeries and saying, look, I'm getting married. My husband and I want a cake. And they would just be told, no, we don't do those sorts of things. He released the video. No one ever prosecuted over that. That's the type of work that Stephen Crowder does. He exposes the hypocrisy of the left. Well, that sort of thing gets very popular online. But apparently Facebook was suppressing it. That's the allegation, the allegation that they're denying. Well, Crowder has announced that he's officially filing legal motions against Facebook requesting information. Let me read to you from his website. Yesterday, I, Stephen Crowder, told you there was more to come. Well, it's coming. And there is far more behind the scenes than can be disclosed here. So please bookmark the site, check back, or join the mailing list. As a matter of fact, this simple legal petition for information was a long time coming. Recent events have only required the timeline to be sped up. Below is the official statement and motion filed by my legal representation. I encourage you to read it in its entirety so that you will understand this is an issue regarding transparency and the trust of business clients as well as users, not merely censorship, which Facebook has the right to do. So reading from his statement, in light of the recent allegations brought to our attention by Michael Nunez and Gizmodo.com, Stephen Crowder is taking steps to determine what, if any, legal action is necessary to address the assertions that have been targeted by Facebook for suppression due to his conservative political commentary. The Gizmodo.com story coincides with and now potentially provides an explanation for Facebook's mismanagement of payments made to Facebook by Mr. Crowder and its woefully biased and unprofessional treatment of his accounts during an ongoing billing dispute. Simultaneously, Facebook has chosen to avoid any transparency in the ongoing removal of certain political posts by Mr. Crowder, ignoring all requests for information Uh, explanation of purported policy violations. And it goes on. So for Crowder, this is about a business relationship. He's right. Facebook is a private company. They can do what they want. But Stephen Crowder, like myself, personally, like the rebel, like CFRA, a lot of businesses pay extra on Facebook to make sure that their message is heard. You may not know it, but Facebook sells a lot of advertising. I can go on right now and say, you know what, I, I want to drop 100 bucks, 500 bucks, whatever, to advertise, make sure that my posts show up in your newsfeed. Even if you follow me on Facebook, you're not necessarily going to see the post. But So I can pay extra to make sure the post is seen. Well, if they're suppressing conservative voices like my own, like Stephen Crowder's, like Rand Paul, like CPAC, then are they in violation of these terms? Why would I be giving them my money to make sure that you can see something when they're just going to make sure that you don't see it? Do you understand what I'm getting at? This is not about censorship. As a private company, they can do what they want. But I'm happy that Stephen Crowder has done this. As I said, we'll try and talk to him about it. I I would say the same thing about a company like Facebook if they were doing it to people on the left. If they're open about it and we know going in, that's fine. But when you sign up for these business accounts, when you sign up to be able to do this advertising on Facebook, you're not told, oh, yeah, by the way, if you're conservative, we're just going to keep you down a little bit. We're going to keep you under our thumb. They don't say that at all. But several different people have said, yep, we were instructed to suppress conservative news. That, my friends, has to be worrying in this new media age.
Stick around. We've got uh, Dr. Frank Knufel, a physician with the Briere Memory Program. Of course, the Briere Continuing Care Radiothon coming up on CFRA at the end of the month. We'll talk to uh, talk to him about the Radiothon and a few issues going on at Briere. And Rick Smith, Executive Director of the Broadbent Institute. Now, I'm going to ask the socialist what he thinks of Facebook suppressing conservative news. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Coming up at the end of the month, we will have the... We'll have the Briere Continuing Care Radiothon here at News Talk 580 CFRA. I believe it's one of the the key fundraisers for the organization throughout the year. And so we're bringing you stories in the lead up to that and trying to help you understand why it is important why this is an important institution i know over the years there's been a lot of money raised for different parts of briere here whether it's saint vincent's the briere center and i was just learning from peggy town last week about how palliative care is just part of it that's in fact not the biggest part but dr frank knufel is a physician at briere memory program joins me now and uh, doctor you deal with one of the issues that i think an awful lot of people as they age fear the most but also People like myself, watching their parents, fear the most. I am uh, continually on the lookout for, I don't know, is she telling me that story again? Is everything okay with my mom? It's a common fear, isn't it? Absolutely. So thank you for the invitation uh, today. And yes, uh, I think losing one's memory and uh, losing one's ability to live independently is one of the biggest fears that older adults have. And uh, and rightly so, because we know that already now there are over 750,000 Canadians that live with uh, memory loss and different forms of dementia. And that's going to double uh, in the next uh, 30 years to over 1.5 million Canadians. So it's a very serious problem, and, and rightly so, people are afraid. So you deal with diagnosing and then treatment. Um Diagnosis, self-diagnosis is always bad. Google diagnosis is even worse. But at what point should someone or a loved one say, you know what, things are are looking worrisome? When, When should they contact someone like yourself, a memory specialist? So I think the first thing is to remember that as we age, uh, our memory does uh, take a little bit of decline. Um, uh, And so what to do is best is to compare ourselves to our peers, right? So if if uh, I'm 75 and my 75-year-old friends are laughing in the same way how we forget someone's name or the other person or, or detail of a conversation, then that's okay. If it becomes more than that, I think then um, it makes sense to uh, go to your family physician and uh, just mention the concern and then they can um, do a screen uh, that helps to sort of go, you know, is this normal aging or might it be more than that? Okay. And then you take over from there and what are the, I guess you put people through treatment or not treatments, but through tests to determine where they're at because Alzheimer's is just part of dementia, part of memory loss. The, what are the other ways? I mean, we, we all just think of Alzheimer's. 
Right. So first of all, we need to differentiate a couple of groups of diseases. So the first is what we call subjective cognitive decline, and that's when someone feels their memory has deteriorated. Um, But when we actually do memory testing, um, they're still in the normal range. If we have someone who's uh, now slipping below the normal range but is still living independently and functioning well, then we call that mild cognitive impairment. When, unfortunately, the memory loss gets to a point where day-to-day living becomes a challenge because I forget, did I already pay this bill and I pay it again or I don't pay it because I think I've paid it and it starts – I start accumulating interest. I take my medicine twice. They take my medicine twice. When it starts affecting day-to-day living, that is early dementia. So first we have to differentiate sort of the, the zones. There's normal. Then there's a subjective cognitive decline, mild cognitive impairment, and then dementia. Then when we go to the actual categories, then underneath each of those, there are different types of diseases. So Alzheimer's, of course, is the most uh, common form of memory loss. But you can also have vascular cognitive impairment where the circulation to the brain is affected. Um, You can have Lewy body dementia uh, and various other types. Parkinson's disease can lead to dementia. So there are different types of uh, cognitive reasons uh, for cognitive decline. Speaking with Dr. Frank Knufel, he's the uh, uh, researcher at the Breer Research Institute and a physician with the Breer Memory Clinic. So let me ask you about the the work that will be coming up on the 26th. 26th, I think, is the the Radiothon. That would support the research that you do. What's some of the research that you're doing in, in terms of, I know you're looking at using technology to help people maintain independent living. Right. So uh, we have a group of uh, research projects, which is in partnership with Carleton University Engineering. But where my interest lies is technology and aging specifically. And so we look at um, uh, the the upcoming challenges that we're going to have with the aging population. And, and we there's a number of domains that we're concerned about. One is, of course, as our memory changes, our ability to do things, as I mentioned earlier, it may change. And so if we can embed sensors into the home, um, we can see if the person is still functioning well. So a simple switch on a cupboard door if that, or, or on the fridge, let's say, we know if they've opened the fridge that, yes, you know, they've had started their morning routine, they've taken a glass of orange juice or whatever, um, some bread out of the fridge. And then so, so sensors in the environment help us to monitor uh, ability to live independently. But would, would I be able to check up? But if I had a relative in that situation, I could pull up my smartphone and say, okay, has, that, has granny or ma gotten out of bed today? That is exactly the, the the plan. We're not quite there, but that is exactly the plan that all this information about sensors would be available to, to loved ones or care providers such as home care. So that's one dimension we're working on is sensors uh, in the home. And the other is uh, testing of memory. Um, people get very stressed when they come see me and I ask them 30 questions under pressure, under time, you know, and, and it's stressful. And, and so people don't always perform at their best. So we're looking at um, computer games games as a way of monitoring someone's ability, cognitive ability, uh, over time. So if I tell you, look, um, I can make you come every three months for a memory test, or you can go home with a tablet and play this game for the next six months, and then when we meet again, I can look at that data. Uh, I think a lot of people would rather play the computer game. And, 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 yeah, um, playing Candy Crush is, uh, is better than getting questioned by a doctor. <laughs> 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But, so, but is it games like that? We're L- doing luminosity, that sort of thing. Well, so Lumosity and and uh, Positive Science are companies that have developed programs to help train the brain. We're not doing that at this point. We're more testing the brain. So we just want to see your ability. So if it improves, though. That that means that your brain is still adapting uh, positively. Um, but if over time you're having more difficulty playing the game and your scores decrease, then it shows that the, 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 the illness is progressing. So that, that's what we're doing on, on the game side right now. All right. Dr. Frank Knufel is with the Breer Memory Program, one of the many programs that the Radiothon on May 26th will be supporting. Thanks for the time today, doctor, and uh, all the best with both your research and the fundraising to support it on the, on the 26th. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And do remember to uh, set aside your checkbook or uh, room on your credit card or learn how to text to a number because we'll be asking you for money on the 26th. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Well, if the enemy of my enemy is my friend, then uh, I would have to say Rick Smith is my friend. He may be a far-left <laughs> radical, but the executive director of the Broadband Institute, I think, likes liberals about as much as I do. Welcome to the show, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I like giving Pleasure you colorful... To be in- here. Happy spring. Happy spring. It, well, it, I don't know where you are today, but it is uh, a beautiful day in the Byward market, I got to tell you. So, yeah, I'm in, I'm in Toronto today. It's a nice day here. Uh the liberals used to sit on the opposition benches with your friends in the NDP and complain that the conservatives invoked closure. They shut down debate too fast. MPs still want to speak. We need to have our say. We need to call more witnesses. In this week, or no, sorry, it was late last week on yeah. the assisted suicide legislation. Peter Julian standing up and denouncing the liberals saying, used to sit here with us and complain if they only gave us five days of debate. Now you're ge- doing a very important bill with two and a half days of debate. This morning they shut down debate on the budget bill. What, what's up with the, the, the liberals? Um, you know, they're supposed to be listening and, and, and in the place where our elected representatives go, they don't want to hear from them. Yeah, I've, I've been surprised by uh, how quickly and how often they've been using closure. I mean, as you say, uh, you know the assisted dying bill. I mean, this is this is a um, this is a, a very important issue, uh, one that deserves. I mean, surely, surely, if an issue, if there's an issue out there that deserves a good, uh, uh, robust debate, that's it. And, and, and uh, they, that, they that's set, an issue where two and a half, two and a half days of debate. So I, I, I think they're playing with fire with their own carefully cultivated brand that revolves around uh, you know listening to people and trying to bring about more consensus. You don't do that with closure. And, and this is a bill where we know what the end result will be. We're going to have assisted suicide, medically assisted dying, whatever term we're using this week. But there are people on all sides that say, okay, let's tweak the bill because we want to get this part right or that part right. People that have supported this for years still say, okay, but the law needs changed a little bit and boom, debate shut down. Yeah, but, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm actually largely in favor of... Um, uh, of the bill, but I, I think that the Liberals made a mistake with this, and that, you know they say they're rushing to try to get a law in place by the Supreme Court deadline in June. Uh, I, you know, I just think that they're they're doing the country a disservice by short circuiting this debate in this way. Uh, it's um, the whole issue of 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 committees. I mean, they've rejected every 
opposition. The NDP had amendments. The Conservatives had amendments. I think Elizabeth May did, and even she was complaining about the Liberals yesterday. It's uh, it's all a little strange. I want to ask you about the the issue I was speaking with, uh, uh, speaking of about half an hour ago. Facebook, according to several former employees, and this is just allegations. The company denies it, but several former employees tell Gizmodo, which is associated with left wing Gawker, I believe. Hey, we we used to be told we've got to suppress conservative news. A lot of conservatives are saying, hold on, this is making me really uncomfortable. What's your take on it as someone who is like me involved in online issues, promoting ideas? Do, do you does it bother you that your opponents might be suppressed on the most important social platform right now? <laughs> well, you know what? I saw this story and I have to say my, my initial thought was uh, this sounds a lot like sour grapes. And on my feed, on my organization's feed, I have not noticed conservatives um, having any trouble getting uh, getting a fair hearing. So I, I, you know, I found this surprising. Um, I started poking into it a little bit. Uh, you know, it's 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 one disgruntled former employee. I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, certain, certainly social media, just like every other media platform, is subject. To the uh, to the views of the people running it, but uh, but I certainly haven't noticed. Uh, you know, the idea that conservatives are having a tough time breaking through on social media seems counterintuitive to me, given given what I see every day. <laughs> That's because you uh, you have people yelling at you on Twitter. That's <laughs> right, like you, for instance. But I'll, I'll always always in the most uh, eloquent of ways. Uh, look, social media it it can be great. But people lose all decorum on all sides when it, I, I when it agree. comes yeah, to that. I would, I, would, I would agree with that. Though, the one, uh, you know what, watching the uh, the reaction to the Fort McMurray fires this week, it's uh, maybe there's a little bit off topic, but, uh, you know, I have to say that, that watching people come together on social media, actually, from the left, from the right, uh, from all corners of the country is, is a good reminder of uh, of what's uh, what's really important, and that you know, during a crisis like that, Canadians come together. So that's that's one example this week where people really come together. I think. Yeah, and and that was heartening in in the House of Commons and out in Alberta. Uh, I think that time's coming to a close because it's about a week, and now people are starting to ask questions of was it handled correctly? Uh, armchair quarterbacking is going to happen, and and I think that's starting now. You know, with all the questions about why was the big water bomber not called in from from BC, but investigations will happen. We'll get to the bottom of this. I want to spend a few minutes uh, speaking with Rick Smith. He's the executive director of the Broadbent Institute, a far-left radical organization um, (laughs) named after the uh, former NDP leader at Broadbent. Am I mischaracterizing your group, Rick? Well, I think think you left out (laughs) well-loved former leader of the NDP. Okay, usually, usually but, but you're, is referred to as the well-loved former leader of the NDP. But you're okay with me calling you a far-left radical group. That's good. Uh, op-ed by Ed Broadbent, who's chair of the Broadbent Institute. Uh, Alex Himmelfarb, is, is he part of the organization? No, he's uh, he's just very interested in this proportional representation okay. issue and, of course, a former clerk of the Privy Council. Okay, and then the third person to sign it is uh, Communist Hugh Siegel. So the the three of you... well well Well-loved... Conservative, Hugh Siegel. Yeah, they've put forward that it's got to be proportionality. That the Liberals promised this would be the last election under first by the post, and that you say 
I'm assuming this is the position of the Broadband Institute as well, that as the government looks to move towards changing the electoral system, that it should be proportional representation. I'm skeptical of this. I've talked about Nathan Cullen, talked about this with Nathan Cullen on air. Try and sell me on it, and I will actually sit quietly and, and listen instead of giving my rebuttal in the middle. That's very kind of you. Yes. Yeah, so, so my elevator pitch is this: that uh, that the first past the post system of government that we use predates confederation. Uh, our country was uh, was not at all uh, what it what it is today. Uh, most countries in the world, the vast majority of countries in the world, have moved away from first past the post systems. Uh, we're one of the few countries in the world that that hasn't. And uh, and. My simple-minded belief is the the percentage of votes that a party gets during an election should dictate how many seats it gets uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, You know, we've got a really complicated, rich, interesting uh, variety of political views uh, in our country at any given time. And it's just right and proper that, uh, that the richness of those views be represented in the House of Commons, not the kind of weird, uh, outdated system we have now. So proportional representation systems elect more women. Uh, they elect a more diverse uh, group of people to legislatures. Uh, they, uh, they result in better policy because it forces uh, parties to actually engage with, with each other. And, uh, you know, widely supported by lots of conservatives. This is the kind of issue where you see, you know, as, as with this op-ed today, uh, you see conservatives, liberals, New Democrats, uh, uh, others coming together and saying, look, this doesn't have anything to do with party affiliation. This is just a good idea. Okay. Now, party affiliation, party power, those are my issues with proportional representation. Is that I think the big problem right now with our democratic malaise, as your mm-hmm. op-ed, uh, as Ed Broadbent's op-ed describes it, is that the parties have too much power. The parties have too much power over who can run, how they can run, what they can say, when they can say it. And that's not central to one party. Uh, I remember calling a new Democrat MP and I got a call back from the central office saying, why are you asking for him? Uh, So this happens everywhere. It happens with the current government, happened with the last government. Parties have too much power. And in my view and from my studying of it, I haven't seen a system of proportional representation that fixes that issue. In fact, in my view, it would entrench it. I, and I want less power for the people like Anne McGrath, Jenny Byrne, and Katie Telford that ran the last election. They're all fine ladies, but I, I want them to have less power, and I want local constituencies, local people, to have more power. Well, listen, I, I actually agree with a lot of what you've said, uh, and there are actually proportional systems that uh, uh, that achieve some of what you've talked about. Look, you know. The fact of the matter is, at, the, at this at this moment across the country, not everybody's ballot on election day counts equally. So, if you're, for instance, if you're in northern Alberta and you're one of the uh, you know 20 percent of people that vote uh, liberal in northern Alberta, uh, you never elect anybody because uh, because of the way our voting system works at the moment. Similarly. If you're one of the 20 percent of people year in, year out, that votes conservative in downtown Toronto, you haven't elected anybody in going on 20 years. So we've got this weird, you know, in, in the last election, uh, uh, 
millions of people in Atlantic Canada did not vote liberal, and yet they were totally shut out. Conservatives, New Democrats, Greens were totally shut out of, uh, of Atlantic Canada. So our current system actually torques results, uh, doesn't reflect the diversity of opinion in the country. And that's all that we're after, is, is that every vote should count the same, no matter where you are in the country. And you should see the expression of your vote in the House of Commons. We should see liberals from northern Alberta. We should see conservatives from downtown Toronto. But doesn't that take away from the local aspect? David McGinty is my local MP. I see him at a local event. I can buttonhole him. He has a connection to the community, um, maybe because he comes from a family of 50. And so (laughs) one of them is, by necessity, your neighbor. But so you can you can find your local MP if you've got a party list system. You know, the party's choosing who my local representative is if that party wins the seat. And and really, are, are they tied to my geographic area or are they tied to party headquarters? Well, there, there isn't a single advocate for proportional representation in this country who is uh, suggesting a party list system. Uh, you're right that that's something that exists in other countries. Totally. That, that, that's the majority that I've seen are either list or partial list systems. So, so the kind of system that was recommended by the, by the nonpartisan Law Commission of Canada about 10 years ago is a mixed-member system that would retain the majority of MPs uh, from ridings. Uh, so you, you could have, uh, you know, we can uh, have our cake and eat it too. We can have the majority of MPs in the House of Commons from a riding. You know where they live. You know who they are. Um, and then a proportional top-up and those can be selected by voters in any number of ways. Uh, so in terms of in terms of what the, the new kind of ballot looks like, it wouldn't look that different to what exists now. And it's actually in use today in uh, almost 100 countries around the world. If they can uh, if they can figure it out, surely we can, too. I would just argue we're a better country. Well, I, I, I would agree with you on that. And that's, <laughs> that's why we need a an improved made in Canada system. All right. Rick Smith is the executive director of the Broadband Institute and uh, agrees to come on so that we can spar on the radio now and again. Thanks for the time, Rick. Thank you. Take care. You can check out their website. It's pressprogress.ca. Leave comments. Back after this. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Just looking at uh, an interview on CTV News Channel right now, they're speaking to fire captain um, who, from Fort McMurray, lost his house while he was saving the homes of others. And the premier saying, don't worry, we'll do what we can to get you back in your house. We'll, We'll give you a timeline within weeks. I've had to travel a lot for work over the last several years. I can tell you after a few days in a hotel, I start to get grumpy. Most of the people that are displaced by the fire in Fort McMurray are not staying in hotels. Some of them will be staying with family and friends. Some of them will be billeted by strangers who just want to help out. Although, can you stay with people like that forever? And many are going to be staying in shelters. They're just going to be staying in shelters. So, I can't imagine what it's going to be like. 
I can't imagine what it's uh, going to end up feeling like after all that time. And then while you're away, you don't really know if you're if your home is still standing. Pray for these people, and um, they could probably still use some more donations. Just a thought. Wanted to let you know that uh, I have been writing a series of columns, series of pieces for The Rebel. There'll be another one up later today. There was one up yesterday on conservatives in the big tent. I laid out the fact that the conservatives were not beaten. I read some of that to you on the air yesterday. They weren't beaten by a huge amount. The numbers actually show a, a fairly healthy conservative party and movement and that it's not being on one issue that led to their defeat. Well, today I I expand on it. That that piece will be out shortly. Check back on the rebel.media later today for that. Uh, That piece will show that you start kicking out bits of the coalition, it won't help. And the fact is there are social issues that conservatives can win on. And then finally, remember this, the left only campaigns on social issues. When they say they want a double pensions or a national daycare program, they'll sometimes throw at economic arguments for it. But primarily, those are social issues for them. Conservatives have won on them before. I explained that in a piece. Check it out later today, the rebel.media or on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. It's been a blast being with you for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, remember, I'm on your side.